On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the November 2018 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be a very terrific conversation, and I think something that's going to be extremely thought-provoking. So my first guest today is Corey Ofsted from Ofsted & Associates in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she's here to talk about her article, Effectiveness of Reprocessing for Flexible Bronchoscopes and Endobronchial Ultrasound Bronchoscopes. Corey, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us is Dr. Atul Mehta from the Department of Pulmonary Medicine and the Boncourt Family Endowed Chair in Lung Transplantation from the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. He's here to talk about his accompanying editorial, Burying Our Heads in the Sand, Cross-Contamination During Bronchoscopy. Atul, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Kyle, for the opportunity. Okay, so so Corey, start start actually well, this is from the beginning. Let's let's talk about your background um, and you know, from education and training, etc. And and what uh, you uh, and why you were involved in the study and and, and what kind of Ofsted and Associates is, etc. Sure, thanks. Well, I'm an epidemiologist, and uh, my company specializes in designing studies and conducting real world research that's intended to validate guidelines, treatments, product claims, and and processes of care to see if the idea of how things sh uh, should work actually does work in the real world. And we're aiming for having uh, insights that can help produce actionable solutions that will end up benefiting all of the uh, folks involved in, in healthcare, including manufacturers, payers, providers, and, uh, and the patients and their families. All right, well, that sounds perfect for bronchoscopy. <laughs> no wonder you got involved. <laughs> well, you know, certainly that's true, and, and we've actually been uh, doing infection control types of, of studies for many years, uh, but I was trained in vaccine research at, at Mayo Clinic uh, and had the pleasure of working in the vaccine research uh, lab there under Greg Poland, so I learned a lot about influenza and some of those uh, sorts of respiratory uh, conditions, but we uh, started studying endoscope reprocessing effectiveness about 10 years ago, and since then we've uh, assessed reprocessing in nine different states in the United States, and uh, we, we've looked at about 900 uh, scopes, and, uh, and you know, over that time we've published about a dozen manuscripts on, on this issue, uh, and so it's, it's been something that we've been studying for quite some time, and, and Bronx really came to mind uh, because their studies on GI scopes were, uh, were detecting contamination in more than 50% pretty, pretty consistently. Um, and we were seeing reports of bronchoscope-associated infections. So we said, uh, it, boy, it'd be interesting to include some bronx in a, in a GI study. And we did that. And they had the same contaminants as uh, upper and lower GI scopes. So then we really started paying attention to the, the concept of these pseudo-outbreaks where clinicians are, are thinking patients had infections, you know, because of the BAL samples, but ultimately someone notices that they don't seem to have symptoms, and so they look, and it's a scope um, that's sick, not the patient that's sick. So uh, huh. I, I was interested, you know, as an epidemiologist, because BAL findings are guiding, by, you know, the treatment decisions. So we wanted to know what's going on there. I liked how you put that, that the scope was sick, not the patient. I, uh, you were working, at least from the paper, it looks like you worked closely with uh, uh, two of the bronchoscopists at University of Wisconsin, Dave Sinetti and Scott Ferguson. Yeah, we, we decided when we were designing this uh, study 
to find a couple of pulmonologists to help us interpret the data and make sure that our study was set up to capture the kinds of things that pulmonologists would be interested in. And so we asked them if they would help with study design and then oversee um, the interpretation of data from all the sites because I'm not a pulmonologist and, uh, and didn't know about clinical relevance. So they graciously agreed to look at the data and help us um, triage it, un unfortunately, because as you know, we found uh, some pretty bad pathogens and, and really needed to have their perspective on what do we do when we have E. coli shigella in a bronch. Uh, right. So oh, sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No. So their role is absolutely essential in, in interpreting uh, the findings for all the sites. So, right, and I want to ask a tool a question, and then I'm going to have you, Corey, launch into what you guys found. And, and I'll just say right now for any of our listeners, if you've not read the article yet, um, you need to drop what you're doing. If you have ever picked up a bronchoscope, you need to read this article, and you need to read a tools editorial that goes with it. It is incumbent upon you to definitively do this. So before Corey even launches into what they found, um, which I think as she already alluded to was quite shocking, um, Atul, are, were you surprised? I mean, even from the intro that she's described, these sort of one-off reports of, you know, we had a mini outbreak of whatever, and it turns out, of course, it was the scope. And, um, you know, this strikes me as an underreported problem. Has that been sort of your uh, experience over the years with this, this issue? Absolutely. Um, and actually, that is what is reflected in the title of my editorial, that it's not only me, but I think the entire bronchoscopy community is aware of this particular problem. Uh, and as you know, several years ago, there was an outbreak at Johns Hopkins, and uh, several patients were involved with that particular outbreak, leading to a paper in New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. And since that time, I haven't heard anything until this article coming out that this problem exists. And, and Kyle, I would like to point out that as we do more and more through the bronchoscope and as we miniaturize our instruments, like we are talking about um, pediatric bronchoscopes and we are talking about ultra-thin bronchoscopes, okay, these instruments, and I'm sure, sure Corey will tell you more about it, are so difficult to clean that this, this, this is going to be uh, even a bigger problem if we don't pay attention to it. And in my opinion, we don't. And hence, that is the reason I titled it as we are burying our head in the ground to this particular problem. So we've danced around it. So, Corey, uh, you know, release the tension here. Tell us all what you found, because obviously everyone's who's listening, if they haven't picked up the article yet, um, you know, we, we, we're clearly describing something that's, that's pretty ominous by your findings, and, and I would agree, um, and I agree with the tools editorial. So let's tell everybody what you found. It, so just a, a little bit of background on the study. The study was conducted in three institutions that were all large uh, academic medical centers that uh, had large, um, complex bronchoscopy programs. And the study method was to collect samples from the bronchoscopes after they had been used and cleaned, and then again after they had been high-level disinfected and, and were allegedly ready for, for patient use. Um, we then had them uh, re-reprocessed and then inspected them visually, and, uh, and after that was done, looked at the storage conditions. So the testing that we did was looking for protein blood ATP microbial cultures. 
uh, and then we were looking for visible defects. So the, the punchline is uh, that we were surprised. And in, in brief, we found that more than half of these allegedly patient-ready bronchoscopes uh, harbored bacteria or mold. And, uh, and one of the sites had microbial growth on 75% of their patient-ready uh, bronchoscopes. And, and the bugs, some of them were environmental uh, bugs or skin flora, but unfortunately we had quite a few bad bugs. So we had Stenotrophomonas, uh, we had E. coli shigella in a bronch, and, and of course that's a, a GI bug, uh, and then again mold. Wait, so I, I, I want to put that in a, just, I want to expand on what you just said. I mean, because, because we got multiple findings, I think all of which are increasingly shocking. But, but, you know, this is a bronchoscope sitting in a cabinet that, you know, I'm a busy fellow. Someone said, go grab a scope. We got to do a bronch or the technician grabs it, whatever. And so they grab this thing to use it because after all, it's clean. It's ready to go. And yet 50% or more had bacteria inside the scope that you could culture and, and had proof of that they were there, and some of which were these pathogens that you described, not just a, quote, normal flora-type bug, but an actual pathogen. Yeah, absolutely, that's true. And, and unfortunately, uh, these, these pathogens like Stenotrophomonas and Sphingomonas, some of these things are waterborne bugs that really thrive if the conditions remain wet. And we had been doing a study last year also on the effectiveness of drying and found that most scopes aren't dry when they're put in storage. So if there are any bugs in there, they get to have a happy little habitat for uh, building themselves a, a cozy place to grow some children. And that's what they did. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's break down some of the other kind of shocking findings. I think when you talked about after manual cleaning, um, what, what did you find after a scope was manual cleaned? So it hadn't gone through a high-level disinfection yet, but what was found there? So we tested for uh, these uh, organic soils after manual cleaning and after high-level disinfection in, in hopes that they would be reduced greatly. And, and we found that the protein levels were extremely high still after, after manual cleaning. And in fact, after they had been through the automated uh, endoscope processing machine, which uh, all those sites were using the same fancy machine, it's a, a very expensive uh, dishwasher if you imagine that, um, those protein levels on the bronchoscopes at all three sites, 100% of the scopes had detectable protein. And in many cases, it was more protein than we found on, on what we think of as a positive control, uh, which is we asked each of the hospitals to get us a bloody gastroscope uh, because gastroscopy tends to usually be pretty messy. And so we took samples off of the gastroscope right after it came out of a patient in a bloody procedure. And so as dirty as possible, as dirty as possible. As dirty as possible, yeah. You know, we, and, and we've, in every other study, the dirty gastroscopes are way, way dirtier than anything else. In this case, the protein levels on the bronchoscopes after they'd been fully reprocessed uh, were close to what was on a dirty gastroscope uh, that had never <laughs> been cleaned. Wow. But, you know, the other thing that was shocking is we found visible defects in 100% of the uh, bronchoscopes. And uh, in, in a tools uh, editorial, he pointed out that we had, we had used kind of rudimentary methods of doing visual inspection, and, and that made me smile because he's absolutely right. 
we did not do electron microscopy or something like that. We just looked at the scopes and, you know, took our iPhone and magnified it a little bit and went, wow, there's stuff there. Uh, and you could see it with your, your naked eye um, across the room sometimes. You could see that there was pink or, or red stuff on it or um, shiny, thick glop, you know, or something like that. But it wasn't advanced microscopy. It was really just taking the time to do visual inspections. And we found visible defects in 100% of the scopes. So this was scratches, dents, uh, residual debris, sticky, oily glop, uh, and fluid droplets. So mystery liquids <laughs> and, and debris. Yes. And these, and then obviously the the implications of physical defects within the scope um, raise then the possibility of obviously biofilms, especially in this wet, gooey, various colored liquids that you just described. Um, and then the implications of the biofilm are probably obvious, but if you could expand on that as well. Yes, certainly in scopes that are repeatedly exposed to the detergents and the disinfectants and cycles of wet and dry and um, and being um, abraded by brushing and, and the tools that you're using during procedures, uh, those scopes would tend to, to develop some sort of a shellac that would cover up um, the microbes that adhere to the inside of the scope channel and, and the port, et cetera. And uh, it can definitely become resilient and survive through exposure to uh, the disinfectants if, if it isn't thoroughly removed every time. And in, in some of the scopes, and there's some photos in the uh, manuscript that's being published in CHEST, you can see that there's uh, brown stuff or, or glop there, and, and that would certainly allow the uh, thriving of biofilm. Atul, what do you think? <laughs> We're going to let Corey keep describing, but I, I would love some yeah. thoughts because uh, I'm in shock. <laughs> well, the thing is, this that is exactly the point between both these two articles. And um, uh, in 2005, we did publish the guidelines. You know, it was a consensus statement. I should not say it's a guideline, but we published a consensus statement um, uh, ACCP and American Association for Bronchology on how to prevent infection during bronchoscopy. And that's a really a major issue. And see, uh, I ask you a question. How often do we teach our fellows? How often do we teach our respiratory therapists or the nurses who assist us during the bronchoscopy on how to clean and maintain the bronchoscope? because this is a real thing. And very recently, I want to point out that um, bronchoscopes have been involved in uh, what you call your carbapenem-resistant uh, enterococci, what you call C enterobacteriaceae, that is uh, CREs, you know, superbug it has been referred as. There yeah. have been, you know, infections related to the bronchoscope in this particular fashion. The reason for my editorial is this, that we as a bronchoscopy community is not paying enough attention on how to clean, maintain, disinfect, or sterilize the bronchoscope. While we continue to do more and more uh, procedures which are very integrated in the sense that smaller instruments going further out to the periphery um, and not paying attention to this, it is very possible that if we are not able to 
prove that we are cleaning these instruments properly, we may end up sterilizing every bronchoscope every time we use it, and that would be totally impractical uh, in your institution and mine because it takes so much time to sterilize the bronchoscope. Well, and I'd so, like to just interject that if, yeah. if they're using damaged bronchoscopes or not cleaning them, the sterilization processes won't work either because they depend on having all of that organic soil and, and other debris removed so that the sterilant can come into contact with the scope. Uh, I, fully agree, I fully agree with you, Corey, and this is what I'm putting it on uh, Kyle's shoulder. Um, is I attend lots of, uh, you know, Bronx training courses and uh, EBUS training courses and uh, advanced bronchoscopy courses and electromagnetic navigation. I haven't seen any course teaching the fellows or the pulmonologists how to clean the bronchoscope and what attention they should pay to. Um, and I just did a very gross survey one time, and I asked the pulmonologist, does the bronchoscope come with a manual? And I tell you, only 10% of the pulmonologists knew that the bronchoscope comes with a manual, just like driver's manual when you buy a car. Yeah. And I tell you, only half of those pulmonologists have ever opened that manual all this information is, is in there, how to clean the bronchoscope, how to hang the bronchoscope, how to dry the bronchoscope, how to manually clean, how to disinfect, how to use your automatic uh, endoscopic processors, and all those things, information is there, but nobody emphasizes paying attention to this thing, and that is, that is what we are talking about. You know, Atul, you in your editorial made a fantastic point about the manufacturer instructions for use, and you asked, asked the question of whether these instructions are adequate. And I'd like to just uh, comment on that because we're doing a, a study right now where we did a survey of uh, about 2,000 uh, people who are members of ISHM, which is the Sterile Processing Association. Yes. And uh, only 69% of the 2,000 respondents indicated that they can understand the instructions for use, and only 66% said it's possible to follow the instructions. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm struck by something, especially what you just said, tool, in the sense that the, the training for the endoscopist, I would wonder the other impromptu survey or a formal survey would be how many endoscopists across, you know, any field of endoscopy, when they pick up the instrument and, you know, getting ready, you know, as Corey said, pure visual inspection with only occasionally even needing a minor magnification, sort of zooming in with the iPhone, revealed obvious defects. And I wonder how many of us routinely, you know, for every scope, pick up the instrument and do an obvious visual inspection. I mean, you know, the pilot goes and does a walk around on the plane just to double check that everything looks right before they go take off. I wonder how many of us actually look at the scope because the, the descriptions that, that are in the paper, you know, the, these, these liquids, these gels, this goo, um, these scratches, these breaks, you know, et cetera, it strikes me that um, when you pick up, when someone hands you a scope, and it looks like it's not even been cleaned, I can't imagine in good faith that we're going to go put that into a patient. But if we don't look even and just say, well, it must be fine, put it right into the patient, um, you know, we, we've already, you know, given up on, on you know, I would argue, our duty uh, to you know, protect our patients by making sure that we're putting something in that's actually clean and sterile. 
Absolutely, Kyle. The thing is, uh, this conus lies on the bronchoscopy stand, and the analogy what you used about the pilot checking the plane, it has to be done that the bronchoscopist checks the bronchoscope. Uh, and there are so many impurities and so many damages and all those things which are happening. And this idea what Corey uh, used, a bore scope, you know, looking the scope inside the scope to look at the channel, and how often these bronchoscopes are damaged. I tell you how often the EBUS scopes are damaged while we are doing EBUS tDNA. Right. Uh, leak, leak test, I tell you that uh, half of the individuals whom I talk to, they don't know what the leak test is. How can you allow them to do bronchoscopy if they don't know what the leak test is? Because that, that instrument should not be used until properly repaired. Uh, one has to be also very careful getting uh, uh, what you call a repair by outside vendors, which are unofficial vendors, you know, and uh, those, those repairs are not foolproof that they have protecting the bronchoscope or protecting your patients from uh, getting contaminated. So th there are lots of issues related to this particular problem. And your association and other associations should sit down together and come up with a thorough guideline, training programs, simulators to make sure that we can safely continue to do this procedure. Otherwise, the time may come, we may have to sterilize every instrument. Atul, when I read your editorial, I loved your idea about using simulators, as you just mentioned, to train the technicians and fellows. And it's interesting because this survey we just did of the reprocessing personnel found that 25% of the technicians in sterile processing uh, receive less than a day of training, and only 46% of them actually were uh, competency tested to make sure that they knew how to clean uh, and, and disinfect different models of scopes. And as you mentioned with your EBIS scope, uh, the EBIS is a lot different than a, a diagnostic or therapeutic or pediatric bronch. And it has different things that have to be done, et cetera. So to me, uh, the idea that you had in your editorial about simulator programs, it, it was exhilarating to think about because instead of doing this, uh, one technician trains someone else who just kind of watches them, and they may or may not be doing it correctly, and so they may teach them, you know, we, who knows what they'll teach them, but a simulator program could offer a standard package that would make sure every tech or fellow or nurse would get exposed to the same information in the same way, and you could customize it for whatever scopes uh, are out there. But you could also require them to have to do multiple rounds of practicing and, and show that they have mastered uh, the, critical, the critical steps. But the other thing that came to mind as I thought about uh, your idea was what about using the simulator to train physicians, supervisors, auditors, et cetera, so they could come in and judge whether the technicians or, or respiratory therapists are doing things correctly? Absolutely. I, I, the thing is we do train our fellows for the first month in their bronch rotation how to clean the bronchoscope, but once they get their wings, everything is, you know, relied on or bronch assistance. And um, right. it's a very dangerous situation at times. And Kyle, I even don't want to go to developing world where they are doing bronchoscopies. And uh, in India, there are at least 150 advanced bronchoscopy centers. 
Yeah. And I even don't want to talk about the cleaning processes over there. Uh, they are just interested in doing uh, procedures on patients with active tuberculosis and other contagious conditions right. and, and the situation. I can't even talk about this um, on, this port, uh, on, this, the, uh, on this conference about this, but it's, it's a worldwide problem. And the CHEST and American College of CHEST Physicians, we are an international organization, and we need to pay attention to the entire problem globally and not just in the United States. Agree. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to jump off of that. If, if Kyle, is it okay for me to comment on that, even though uh, I can't go into that? So Please. in August, uh, the CDC had their International Conference on Emerging Infectious Diseases, and I was invited to participate, and I presented the bronchoscope uh, study there. There were about 1,500 people from all over the, the world at that conference, including lots of CDC and World Health Organization uh, uh, representatives. But I was struck by the presentations by so many experts from other geographies about outbreaks of infection that have pandemic potential. And as you know, many of these uh, these bad outbreaks are respiratory illnesses. And uh, presenter after presenter said, well, we have to do bronchoscopy because we have to confirm that the patient with these symptoms is ill with the, the epidemic strain. Uh, and, and so we, we need that because sputum doesn't work and blood tests don't work. And so we do bronchoscopy, and the strangest thing happens. Uh, shortly after bronchoscopy, patients, even if they were doing fairly well and breathing on their own, they suddenly take a turn for the worse, and, and we find that they need to be put on a vent, and, and sometimes they're succumbing um, it very rapidly to disseminated infections. And so in the panel discussions, I raised my hand and said, has anybody thought about the Bronx? Right. And it turned out no one had thought about that. Uh, and so a gentleman from Switzerland said, why aren't we all using the single-use uh, Bronx for these situations? but they just don't have them and don't have resources. So in addition to the problems with TB in India and the MERS that's over in the Middle East and you know, all the uh, influenzas and avian flu in, in Asia, we have to be thinking about the possibility of creating pandemic uh, potential strains and spreading them very efficiently if we're using uh, Bronx that we cannot be sure are clean. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Now, Corey, one other thing in your paper that I was struck by, um, you know, the, the, clearly the issues of, you know, focusing on the scopes and your, your connection with the positive control, but you also had a negative control. You had a brand new, never been used before bronchoscope that then, you know, got cleaned and lo and behold, <laughs> what did you find? Yeah, you know, that was interesting. So we actually had two of them. Um, these are yeah. brand new scopes still in the box. And uh, as a negative control, we tested them after we took them out of the box, after they uh, were cleaned in the sink, and then after they came out of the AER. And on one of them, and, and, and they're, not, they're not sterile in the box when they're Correct. Sure they come from a, a manufacturing facility. But one of them, the protein level was uh, below a, a, a level of concern, you know, so it was detectable, but not much. It was a level of four. And then it more than quadrupled after it had been manually cleaned in the sink. And, and actually, the cultures went from negative to positive. So that showed us that subjecting bronchoscopes to the, the sinks, which if, if you think about it, they're also used to clean GI scopes, 
um, may put additional pathogens and protein and blood and things like that onto the scopes. And then you just have to cross your fingers and hope that in the automated reprocessing machine, it will clean it off. But, of course, what happened in this study was at one of the sites, they actually had disabled the cleaning cycle on their AER because the physicians had demanded faster turnaround uh, time. They didn't want to wait that long to get the, the scopes back. And so the, the innovative solution that the uh, reprocessing team came up with was to turn off the cleaning cycle and, uh, and, and skip it. It saves about 20 minutes if you do that. But in my opinion, that's like buying a fancy dishwasher and then telling it to skip the dishwashing. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, so. That that strikes me, and I think the tools uh, editorial adds to this, talking about that that you know the the your findings are, are shocking in multiple ways, and you know I suppose someone can try to say, well, give me all the proof that this led to infection, but I don't even in the absence of that, you know that there was a, a, a demonstrable infection. I, I think we would all agree, a it's it's underreported, um, but. Um, but also, just from the patient's perspective, if I'm a patient and you're about to do a procedure to me, if there's a chance that you're about to put something dirty into me, it's not happening, right? I mean, from a just patient advocacy perspective, I don't think it needs you need your degrees in epidemiology or an MD that we shouldn't be putting dirty things down into clean areas of patients. Um, you know, the public is not going to stand for that. Yeah, certainly true. But but with Patients undergoing bronchoscopy, many times they're not in a position to refuse. And, exactly. And particularly in some of these um, epidemic situations, et cetera. But I'd like to go back to something um, that, that you and Atul were talking about with regard to doing your walk around. Uh, when we did a, a study on ureteroscopes, uh, we had similar findings. And incidentally, we had two new um, ureteroscopes, and they also became dirtier uh, when they were, were processed than when they were, were new. Um, but I met with 10 urologists after uh, we finished that study, and they said that when they go into the procedure room, uh, most commonly the lights are off. And so they said not only do they not do a careful visual inspection, but they may not even really see the scope with their eyes because they just grab it with their hands and do their, do their thing. Is that true for bronchoscopy as well? Could happen. It could happen, yes, because the you know procedure might have been started by a fellow, or something like that. You know, we do our timeouts and everything, but it could happen that the procedure is being performed in a darker uh, area. Yes. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, we usually have in my own institution, we usually have the lights on. Then when we begin, we'll turn the lights down to some degree. But I think it's not unreasonable that in some cases the physician walks in and the lights are already down, and you know everything's kind of ready to go, and so off they go. I think that's you're identifying already another barrier to just the the process of the visual inspection amongst amongst all the many other barriers that are already being outlined. And um, you know, I'm also struck by. Um, the, the issue of we talk about, you know, sort of manual wear and tear. I mean, these things get used. They get used a lot. I was struck by one of the, the age range of the scopes that you were under investigating. It was one that was 11 years old. Um, and, you know, I, you could just argue that manual wear and tear, just sliding of a forceps through that thing at some point might grind some metal, um, for example. Um, you know, um, that just, I was struck by how long that had been, how old that scope was. Yeah, absolutely, and and we've tried to get clarification from manufacturers about 
schedules for maintenance and the uh, you know the lifetime durability of uh, the various kinds of endoscopes, and they they uh, won't state what that is, but uh, we're doing a, a study right now on, on uh, bronchoscope cost, and one of the four sites uh, in that study has a scope, a bronchoscope that's 29 years old. Wow. I, I, you know, these things continue to be mind-boggling. Well, so, so we've been talking for a while, and I want to make sure that um, I'm respectful of everybody's time. And, and there's also, I mean, there, the, the level of detail within the paper highlights, you know, goes into higher detail than, than some of the sort of broad overviews that we've, you know, that you've presented in, in, in what you found. But I also, in case there's any other key parts of the study or other kind of, you know, thoughts and statements you wanted to make that, that I failed to ask you about, um, I want to give you both that opportunity to sort of wind things down but give uh, any kind of final thoughts or things that we should have spoken of and failed to. No, I think we have touched upon uh, most of the things what we wanted to talk about, but I think there's still, I would say, ignorance and um, uh, what I say that we are avoiding the problem, not paying attention to there have been about 50-plus cases of mediastinitis following uh, uh, EBUS TBNA, and we as a bronchoscopy community has not paid much attention to this. So, you know, I hope that this article and this editorial pays our, you know, uh, points out to that bronchoscopy should pay attention to this problem more precisely. Agree. Corey? So I have two other things uh, I wanted to raise. Uh, and you Please. started out, tool talking about the outbreak at Johns Hopkins, but earlier this year Johns Hopkins released a study on infection rates with various kinds of, of endoscopy, and I'd like to hear from you guys what you think about their findings because they found, uh, in, in contrast to what's been believed, that the risk of infection is one in a million. Uh, they found for colonoscopy it was about one in a thousand, for cystoscopy it was about four in a thousand, and for bronchoscopy it was 15.6 in a thousand. So, and we're not talking rare here; we're talking uh, common, and uh, and that's. One part of the question, I'd love to hear comments from both of you, but the other part is that we discovered um, in the last year that in many cases patients are already on antimicrobials or they are started on uh, prophylactic antimicrobials or periprocedural antimicrobials. And some of that's because of the BAL uh, results, but sometimes it's uh, empiric based on uh, symptoms or it's just a, a prophylactic uh, thing to do. What what's your um, take on the Johns Hopkins findings and also this phenomenon of the high proportion of patients on um, on antimicrobials and how that might play in if we're using dirty scopes? Well, my, my take tool. On this, yeah, my take on this thing is that, as Kyle mentioned earlier, it is totally underreported, underrecognized, because we just you know, don't pay attention to us. So those numbers don't surprise me at all. And I strongly believe that the bronchoscopy numbers are even worse. Okay? Mm. Yeah, I wonder out loud. I mean, we, we know um, there's always limitations to culture data. Um, and sometimes, um, you're right, in the setting, if the bronchoscopy was done already on, in the setting of antibiotics, um, um, you know, 
I wonder, uh, with as Atul just said too, that the, the problem is probably larger. Um, so, but you're absolutely right. I, I guess I look at that number um, and don't question it <laughs> in the sense of saying, "Oh no, that's too high." Um, and I think most of us would agree, especially especially when you put it into the light of your findings. Um, you actually, could make the argument. I'm shocked that it's as low as it is, um, given what you've described. Now, I think the other thing is, is, and this is, I think, why your study, I think, was so sort of eye-opening for everybody, and and helps us to take our heads out of the sand to to go with a, um, a tool's editorial, is that you know it's pretty uncommon that a healthy host is undergoing a bronchoscopy. By definition, there's something impaired about you that we are you know, querying the inside of your lungs with this instrument. And so um, this, by definition, is not being done very often, I mean, research settings, et cetera, in a normal host. So I can think of, you know, the, the person who's least prepared to have a contaminated bronchoscope and potentially have a pathogen introduced um, would be the average person we're doing bronchoscopy on. Um, and so when I hear those numbers out of Hopkins and others, I, I actually kind of shocked that they're as low as they are, given what I've discovered within your article. I think that's uh, Kyle, true. I gotta, Kyle, I got to go. May okay. I? Okay? Yes, please. No problem at all. I understand. Thank please you for your time. I have a patient waiting. Thank you so much. Okay? Go. No, no Thank problem. You. No problem. And a pleasure. Corey, go ahead. Thanks, Corey. Nice talking to you. Okay? Thank you, Atul. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. Corey, you said you had another, uh, you know, thought and another uh, thing you wanted to, to, to relay to the group so or to the listener, so, so please. Yeah, you know, basically, as I thought this over and saw the editorial that Atul uh, and Tom wrote, uh, it occurred to me that the involvement of the pulmonology community could serve to more rapidly bring about a turning point, not just for bronchoscopy, but for all endoscopes, because other uh, professional societies and specialties have been made aware of the problem, but I think they've continued to bury their heads in the sand, and this denial and attempts to contain it or to cover it up have only resulted in ongoing risks for patients, providers, institutions, and, and for public health because of this superbug phenomenon. And right. so I, I just feel very strongly that leadership um, by pulmonologists in your organization could result in more rigorous guidelines and quality management protocols that could truly minimize risk for patients and, and all the rest of us. No, I couldn't agree more. I am struck by the. I'll put on my. Um, I'll put on my bean counter hat, right? So I'm going to ask you a question that I obviously don't believe in, but pretend pretend I do. So I now look at this and say, wait a minute. You know, you you describe sort of the ideal conditions, and I have to. My you know my my cleaning people have to be dressed in like biohazard four gear, and I have to have the most sterile clean room ever, and it has to be separate from the GI room, and then you know everything has to be. It's going to take like hours to clean a scope, which means that I have to now, and if I've got a busy day, I've got to have way more scopes. And, and since they don't last very long, these expensive scopes, I'm going to have to buy even more of them. And, you know, at some point, the, the, the barely profitability of bronchoscopy, and let's face it, it's barely profitable, um, if, it, if, if it even is profitable, is gone. So, you know, you can start to see the pessimist saying, how is this even going to occur as a procedure? And, and you know, you wonder out loud just, we strive for perfection, but but you know you get you know there was that argument of the one center said, yeah, but we need the scopes quicker, so turn off that one cycle, um, you know, and and so there's going to be this argument for balance. But uh, now again, 
I, I don't buy into that. I actually think that uh, to expose our patients unnecessarily is it goes against everything that we stand for as physicians. But um, tell me what you know what your thought process on that one is, because I can immediately think of you know looking at some of the solutions, and some of those solutions are going to cost a fortune. You know that's that's absolutely true. And at the site that we called Site B. Uh, that had growth on 75% of scopes, and they had E. coli, Shigella, and, you know, they had, they had bad, uh, bad bugs, mold in their Bronx. Uh, we uh, recommended that they shut the program down and stop doing bronchoscopy until they could get their arms around their quality, and they weren't in a position to do that. They're a huge uh, trauma center, and, and they need uh, to be able to do that, but they did have some single-use uh, bronchoscopes in the ER, and they decided um, to have all pulmonologists use those for a few days till they could get their arms around quality. And they asked us what would it cost to switch to sterilization and what would it cost to switch to single use. And at the time, we didn't know. So right. this year, uh, we actually are conducting a study. It's in four hospitals that are not part of this uh, study that you've published, uh, but we're doing a study on what the cost is of of having uh, a bronchoscopy program of acquisition, maintenance, reprocessing, storage, uh, supervision, and audits, all of that. Uh, and then we're trying to get our arms around what more does it cost to switch to sterilization and and what's the cost of single use. And, and I appreciate single use can't be used for every procedure where you need some advanced functionality or the, or the EBIS, but... Um, we're trying to get our arms around that, and that paper will be published actually in the Sterile Processing um, uh, Association's magazine in the spring. And so stay tuned for that, but we, we think we have to look at this. We have to really take a look at how do we make this be a tool we can use to help patients and not uh, increase the risk to them and to the general public uh, with the possibility of, of assisting in developing these pandemic potential strains or superbugs. When that gets published, will you please make sure that you send us the link so that we can have that up on the website for the journal so that people that are listening to this podcast can then follow up? Because I, that study sounds extremely compelling as and thought-provoking for um, us trying to ultimately work on solutions that go beyond just obviously a, um, uh, optimization of process um, and, and ways to explore it that way. So. We all look forward Absolutely. to that. Absolutely, and I, I'd encourage your members to get involved with this organization. It's called ISHM, I-A-H-C-S-M-M. Um, it's $50 a year to be a member, but they have done a tremendous job of putting together a textbook, uh, a consortium of about 20 of us helped write it on endoscope reprocessing, and we've been putting together workshops on endo uh, reprocessing. I would love to, to find a way to work with you guys on simulators or something like that because we need to find better ways to support quality. Wonderful. Oh, the, don't worry. <laughs> You're going to be hearing probably from way more people than you want to. Be careful what you just wish for. <laughs> bring it on. Bring uh. it on. Bring it on, bring it on. Well, I think we've, we've monopolized enough of your time, and, and if we could, we'd probably talk for hours. So I, I, I want to thank you. This has been an extremely thought-provoking, and as a person who does bronchoscopy, um, I, uh, you know, obviously uh, found your article uh, disturbing and fascinating at the same time. So thank you. Um, and But uh, I know our listeners, without a doubt, uh, have very much enjoyed this discussion. So uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure.